Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening and welcome to this very special event uh, looking at South Australia's power system in the summer ahead, uh, organised by the State Library of South Australia and the Grattan Institute. Um, I'm Nick Harmson, the ABC's uh, now former state political reporter in South Australia, uh, and uh, we've got a panel of experts tonight. Um, we're looking forward to hearing from you later in, later in the evening, so if you've got questions, um, please keep them uh, at the top of mind. Uh, now, it's been a tumultuous... Uh, before I do that, I'm going to go through uh, and thank the traditional owners of the land, uh, the Ghana people, uh, and we pay respect to their elders past and present. Now, it's been a tumultuous couple of years in the Australian energy market, from the statewide blackout that crippled this state a little over two years ago, to the closure of coal-fired power stations in Port Augusta and Hazelwood, to an explosion in prices for customers, and an explosion in new investment and technologies, be they big batteries, pumped hydro or solar thermal plants. And that's before we even mention the political energy wars, which, at least in part, appear to have played a role in the demise of yet another Prime Minister. Through this all, the people who manage our electricity grid and the major companies that operate within it have had to deal with a diminishing supply of thermal electricity and a tighter supply-demand balance which has presented new challenges for managing the system on days of peak demand, in particular in the middle of summer. We've seen governments in South Australia and Victoria take action by installing their own temporary generators, and the market operator has also taken unprecedented measures to ensure the southern states have enough power to get by. Tonight, we'll hear about how our system is shaping up for the long, hot summer ahead. We'd love you to join the conversation on social media on the... Uh, uh, Twitter hashtags provided, Grattan Institute and the State Library of South Australia, uh, and we'll take your questions later this evening. Uh, our first guest tonight is Audrey Zibelman. She's the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Energy Market Operator. Audrey has extensive experience in the public, private and not-for-profit energy and electricity sectors in the United States, most recently having held the position of Commissioner and Chair of the New York State Public Service Commission. We please welcome Audrey Zibelman. Good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you to Grattan and to the State Library for the chance to join you tonight. I have the shortest presentation, the question, are we ready for summer? And the answer is yes. So now you can sit down. So what I, um, so as, as uh, Dick was saying, so Emo's role is obviously, our worry is all the time, not just the summer, but 365 days a year and 24 hours a day and every minute of the day, making sure that the power system is operating in a way that's secure and reliable and we're dispatching resources based on the lowest price. But for summer, our issue is always around how do we meet the demand? So in many ways, power system operators are like farmers. We're always complaining about weather and we're, we're always worried about the heat. And so in what we think about is the fact that many hours of the year, particularly here in the fall and spring now, because of the abundance of wind and solar generation, we can have very, very low demand. But in summer, particularly during the hottest days of the year, we need to make sure that there are resources that are available to deal with those super peaks. And so what we think about all the time is what, what are we going to need during those super 
times appears when it's hottest during the day, particularly when it's, we're thinking about hot temperatures higher than 35 degrees. Um, and so in that context, you know, we think about, well, what happens historically, and then we forecast, well, what might it be during those hot days, and do we have enough resources available? Our common concern, and we normally think about, is is it going to be more than the 2,400 megawatts in South Australia when we think about it here? Now, what I want to do is a little bit of history. So what happened in um, February 8, 2017, when we looked at the near load shed events, is that we we're having a very high demand day. It was very, very hot. Um, we had some thermal generation that was not available to us. And so we ended up with a total of uh, 3,046 megawatts of generation was available, but our demand was 3,085 megawatts. So we had to reduce, to reduce load, which of course created a lot of anxiety. And particularly on hot days, one of the things that we worry about is not just the inconvenience, but really public health and safety. And so thinking about that going forward, it's never a situation that we, we, really, we want to be in. And even though the rules allow for it, it's something that really people don't tolerate and they really would like to make sure we have resources available. So going into last summer, we thought about, well, how do we prepare? So just, just to put this in context, in 2017 was the third hardest, hottest summer on record. Last summer, it was actually the second hottest summer on record. And yet we took a totally different approach. And as a result, we didn't have to worry about the load shed events. So EMA went into the summer with a very aggressive program and we worked very closely with the state government to make sure we had resources available as well as the as the local utilities. So we did a number of different things. We worked to make sure that all the generation that was available, could be available, was available. We worked with the networks to make sure that their systems were going to be available. We weren't taking any outages during periods of time where we didn't want to have outages. We made a number of operational improvements that uh, around how we can direct and, and how do we make sure resources are available when we need it. And then we conducted extensive planning and education so we were prepared throughout the, the NEM. In addition, there were some uh, actions that were taken by the government to put in diesels to make sure we had additional resources. And of course, we also worked very hard on the Tesla battery, which made a really significant difference to us last summer. And I would say it's something that Steve Masters and I talked about. We, we put that battery in, the world largest battery, in less than six months. And so while we do a lot of criticism around this industry, the fact is, is that while we're doing all these things are going on, the industry itself is working very hard to meet needs. And we're doing things that over in other places would take years. We're doing them in very short time, and, and we're getting it done. So that's what happened last summer. And as a result, we had a good summer relative to the point of we were never in a position where we had to involuntarily reduce load because demand was highest, even though we had the second hottest summer on record. Coming forward this summer, and you know, we work a lot with the Bureau of Meteorology. We're really looking at what we would say would be, a, you know, for us sitting here today, a worrisome situation relative to what we're seeing in the summer. So as you know, we're having a, 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 a drought in New South Wales. For us, it's not just uh, the fact that it's hot weather, but we worry about, well, what does that mean? Well, one, one thing that it means is that for, for generation, 
is that if there's reduced water, then the generators won't have enough water that they need to run the system, so there's a risk of that, so we have to think about that. We have to think about um, bushfires, because one of the things that happens if there are bushfires, then we have to really we have to manage the networks. They may not be available, so we can't import energy. Uh, we have to think about the fact that if you have heat waves that are in multiple states, and when you think about South Australia, South Australia and um, Victoria are essentially one state when it comes to the power system. And so if you have multiple heat waves in both states, we have to think about how these resources can be shared among two states that are having heat waves during the same time. So these are all the things we think about in terms of preparation for the summer. And um, like many entities who are in this, this kind of public service business, we plan for the worst and we hope for the best. So we always have to think about what's the worst thing that could happen and are we ready for those worst things. And that's, that's really what we're doing on the system. So to do that, um, just to kind of give you a typical way of way, the way we look at things. On a typical summer in, us, in South Australia, we would expect the demand, the amount of consumption, to be around 2,400 megawatts. When it's a very hot summer, and we look at hot summers and what happens when we, we call it one in 10, you know, what, you know, you have these very hot weather, it might not be every summer or every other summer, but every once in a while you get these very hot days, and unfortunately Mother Nature never advertises to you, so you just have to think about, well, how are we gonna deal with that, although we do use these type of forecasts to think about, well, what is it gonna be a very hot summer? And then we look at the resources that are going to be available. Now, one of the things when you operate a power system, you need to make sure that the power system is fully controllable. We can't hope that when it's a summer peak day, when it's really hot and humid, that um, that's not gonna be during the weekday when we consume the most energy. We have to assume the worst, and so we have to make sure that resources are gonna be available on those hottest days. And at those hottest days, we also know that the wind often isn't blowing, and so we have to rely on resources that we can control. So what we do is then we forecast what's available in terms of resources that we can actually manage and control, and then we look at what, are, what we might need for emergency reserves. This would be like the diesels that, are, that is government bought that are sitting outside the market. It could be units that would otherwise not be available, but we tell them they have to be available on a certain day. And also we're doing work with ARENA around demand type resources when people have solar and storage. In fact, there's a lot of work we're doing now with the government about what we call virtual power plants, where if we can aggregate solar and storage and all these resources together, it looks like a power plant to us. And what happens is, is that rather than reducing demand, we start relying on these distributed resources to actually help manage the system, which is a lot cheaper, frankly, than, doing, than building power plants just to do with these peak days. So that's what we're looking at this summer. We're going out for these backup resources. And with that, then our expectation is, is that if we have 2,888 megawatts we can depend on reliably, how do we supplement that so that the resources we have are greater than what we expect the peak demand to be on the worst day if it hits at the worst time. And that's really what AEMO does around the system. It's what we did last year, and it's what we're doing this year, and quite frankly, it's what every system operator does around the world to make sure the lights stay on during peak periods. So it's nothing unusual, it's just good planning. So with that, we look at that issue. 
Again, we're also working with the, uh, the, uh, the distribution and transmission networks to make sure that we're well aligned on, on how the system is going to be maintained. We're working with the generators. We do a lot of training. We, we um, just like anyone else in, in a sort of in these type of businesses, you want to make sure you're thinking about all of the contingencies and you're ready for them. And we do a lot of communication. We work well, we work very closely with the governments. We work with, when we see hot weather coming, we, we, the government is well aware. We look to coordinate. If we see problems on the system, we're in discussions constantly with the distribution and transmission networks and the generators. So those are all the things that, that we do to get ready. It's what we did last year. It's what we're doing this year. And, and as a result, while we're never going to say, oh, we're certain, we certainly have that quiet confidence of having been prepared, thinking through all the eventualities, making sure you have the resources, and being ready to go for whatever events might, might hit you. Going forward, and, and this is really the piece that I think is very important, for AMO and for you, there's just not one summer, it's every summer. So we're always thinking about you know, how, do, how do we plan for the future. One of the things that's, that's very important for us, and we developed what's called an integrated system plan last year to start thinking about not just next year, but the next 10 years, the next 20 years, what's happening on the system. So there are a few things that, you know, we're a system operator. We're not a regulator. We're not a policymaker. We deal we sort of with the hand we've been dealt, and we have to make sure that we can manage that hand. So for us, one of the things that we're dealing with is the fact is if we work with the Bureau of Meteorology, the temperatures throughout Australia are getting hotter every year. This slide actually shows how the temperature has increased over the, since, uh, over, since 1910. But the other thing that's happening is, is that we're seeing heat waves are longer in duration, and the extreme weather stream temperatures are getting hotter. So as we think about the power system, we have to think about not just planning for what happened five years ago, but what's going to be happening next year. So for, someone, for an entity like AIMO, uh, power, power systems used to do planning around forecasting, and they would base it on looking at every year's last 10 years of data, thinking about history was a really good predictor of the future. But when you have temperatures going up like this, your history is somewhat relevant, but it's not going to be as relevant. So you need to be really thinking about these events. The other things that we think about is that when these events happen, not you know, we might not see the, some of the same demand increases we've seen historically because of the penetration of rooftop solar, but we also have to think about resource availability, so it's the same set of issues. If it's going to be a really hot summer, we have to think about, well, where are we going to be moving in terms of are there going to be more bushfires, and how do we manage across that? How do we create a resilient system around that? If it's a really hot summer, we have to think about how the generators degrade. Even solar generators will reduce their output by about 25% on hot days. So we can't, so not only does demand go up, but supply can go down. Our networks are not able to carry as much resources when it's hot. So we have to start thinking as a society, what's it going to look like to manage a power system with hot, much higher temperatures than we've had historically? How do we build resiliency into the power system as, as we move forward? Which is why, just as we plan for next summer, we have to plan for the future, and we have to be thinking about that. The other thing that's happening in our power system is, is that a lot of our generators are getting older. 
And when they get older, not only do they have problems with maintaining their outcome, I, I kind of, since I'm in my 60s, I can say this without insulting people, we sort of gets a little harder to run fast when you get a little older. So you got to change how you think about things. And one of the things that we're worried about is as these generators get older, they're going to retire. And these are a lot of megawatt hours that we have to replace. And we want to do that at a time that, one, we're all worried about prices. And secondly, our demand for energy is not growing like it used to. It used to be when I entered this industry in 1988, in almost every OECD country, you can count on 2 to 3% growth on demand year after year. So when you were building generators, you were pretty certain that that demand was going to increase and you needed that generator. Now we're in operating in a very different environment where because of the preeminence of rooftop solar and, store and, roof and now storage is coming in, we're seeing demand flatten out. But our networks are getting older, and our generators are getting older, and so we want to do everything we can in order to make sure that we keep the lights on, but we're replacing these resources with the lowest cost resource available. And you can't do that by hoping it to occur. You have to actually plan for it and think it through. So one of the things that came out of and where the industry's actually worked <coughs> on, we produced last year, and we're going to continue to work with the industry to get better and better at that, is coming up with a forecast of what could be the scenarios that could happen in the system, and then what combination of resources do we need to do to make sure that, one, we can meet the resource needs, but we can also make sure, as we found here, that we're maintaining enough types of resources to manage the, the physics of the system, frequency, inertia, voltage, all the things that a power system needs. So it's, it's about a, a process of, of thinking it through and then making it happen. So one of the things that we developed last year was, was really what we call the, the integrated system plan, was to start thinking about, well, what's going to happen and what could happen when these coal generators retire. And the way AEMO does it is we do an engineering study. We actually study every hour of every day over the 20-year period, it's not, and it's based on cost. We're not predicting prices. We're just saying, if you look at all of those hours, what will be necessary for the system? And then based on the cost of various solutions, we say, well, what would be the least cost type of investments that would be necessary to meet that demand, if you assume rational actors, that people will do the least cost? And then we think about, and then what kind of networks will we need to actually support those change systems? So going forward, What's happening in the power system, and this is not just in Australia, it's actually happening worldwide, is that we've such, such a huge reduction in the cost of solar and wind, and, there's, and we're also seeing changes in the use of gas and the changes in hydro, that we have to be prepared for a very different power system. And those, those will be changes that are driven by as much by economics as they are about policy. And we have to think about then, if that happens, how are we going to manage that power system? What kind of resources are we going to need? Because for AEMO, again, we're not going to be dictating that. But we can't wake up one day and say, well, we're not ready for it. And so we're working very closely with the networks to think about how do we use rooftop solar better? How do we use storage better? If there's going to be hydro, how do we manage that better? What kind of things we're going to need? And then what we want to do is take a number of least cost options, such as the Riverlink project between here and New South Wales, that we see as something that makes so much sense. Because by linking South Australia to New South Wales, we make the system more resilient. 
We take advantage of the resources in both states, which will, re will then make it beneficial for more customers and for us give us a better set of resources we could deal with. So it's those types of things that the industry is already going. So my, my last point on all of this, and I know well, there's a lot of discussion around the energy industry and there's a lot of upset, but when I think about what we've done in South Australia, we took what was a problem when we had the blackout where we learned from there, the issues around inertia and frequency and how wind behaves in these circumstances. And we made a set of rule changes so that will not happen again. And those changes are in place. We took an issue in terms of, well, how do we make wind better? And we started adding, and we added storage. We got it done, and we showed that, frankly, this is a good way to, to run the system. We started looking at the issues in terms of what do we need to make the system more resilient. And now we're starting to look at a project to build out transmission. And we started looking at how do we use solar and, and, and storage better. And we have projects going on in South Australia around virtual power generation that I think is very exciting. So you know, while there's a lot of upset, I think there's a lot of good news in this industry. And I always try to end this by telling you, outside of Australia, people take a look at what we're doing and they said we're leading. And, and so I think we ought to feel good about that, and I particularly think we ought to feel good about South Australia because of the things that we've accomplished in the last several years, and we are in good shape, I think, for the summer. So thank you. Thanks, Audrey. Audrey spoke about building models based upon assumptions about rational actors. I don't know how you can adjust your models for polit Australian politics in 2018, but you might need to look at that. Uh, our next speaker tonight is uh, Steve Masters, uh, who's a resources industry executive with over 20 years experience and currently holds the position uh, of Chief Executive Officer of Electronet, which is the company that owns, maintains and operates uh, our transmission grid. Uh, Steve has previously held a number of senior and executive roles with key Australian energy companies, leading commercial marketing and corporate development functions. Steve, welcome. Well, thank you, Nick, and um, thank you to the State Library and also the Grattan Institute for the opportunity to be here tonight. Uh, I'd also just like to pay my respects to the Kaurna people, the traditional land, um, and pay my respect to Elders past and present. Look, I think Audrey's um, kicked off with a pretty good summary in terms of the situation, not just in South Australia, but more what the, the wider NIM is facing. I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes, and I know there's people very familiar with what, what Electronet does in the room, but just... Um, use it as a bit of a grounding session so that we're on the same page as to exactly what Electronet does do and what it doesn't do, because I do go to a number of meetings uh, from time to time where uh, it's probably fair to say that there is confusion in terms of what our role is. So if you just bear with me for a minute or two and I'll, then I'll get on to what we're looking to do um, over the summer break. So just to be clear, we look after the, the high voltage transmission grid in the state. Uh, but I guess the diagram on the screen kind of shows you the role we play. So there's four kind of key components from generation right down to retail. Uh, we sit almost, I wouldn't say fairly and squarely in the middle, but we're probably a pretty critical component of what we need to, to supply to our state and also very mindful of the obligations that we have under the rules, whether they be state or the national electricity rules. Uh, I think importantly, and one thing I do want to stress, and I will touch on it a bit later, is that you know, we represent about 7% of a typical residential bill. Uh, and again, there's a lot of conversation uh, in the industry uh, by informed and less than informed um, sources in relation to where we fit. Uh, and I feel a bit like we're the Collingwood Football Club sometimes. We're kind of all a bit tarred with the same brush. 
Uh, not that I'm a Collingwood supporter, but I think you know what I mean in terms of the way that energy is very uh, politicised in the environment at the moment and also very uh, popular in terms of um, where it sits in the media. Just to touch on our assets, uh, just for a couple of minutes, and um, we cover around 200,000 square kilometres in the state. Uh, we have around a bit over 5,600 line kilometres, and you can see we actually sit at the end of the national electricity market. So we do have a radial network uh, that goes to all far reaches of the state, and you can kind of just see a few examples of our assets over here is the, just pointing to the far left of the screen, is our uh, battery that we've built on the York Peninsula in this area. Um, again, over here was the, the Hornsdale wind farm and the Tesla battery that uh, Audrey was touching on a little while ago. But as you can see, just a flavour of different types of assets through the state, uh, including quite a significant telecommunications network as well. I just want to spend two seconds again, or more than two seconds probably, just talking about customer focus because it is at the heart of what we do uh, as an organisation. We are very mindful of the cost of electricity right across the chain, not just in South Australia but right across Australia. And I just wanted to touch on the way that we've gone about it the last uh, couple of years and also just, um, just flag that you know, quite recently uh, we've had the Australian Energy Regulator uh, approve our regulatory submission, which actually resulted in an 11% decrease in transmission prices going forward. Uh, that translates into a, a saving to a typical residential household of about $17 per annum, and if you're a commercial customer, about $33. What is very topical in the industry at the moment is the weighted average cost of capital, the WAC, the rate of return upon which regulated networks can earn. Uh, the AER um, gave us a, a WAC of 5.69% for the next five year period. And why that, while that's interesting, it's just to paint a picture that the previous five years it was 7.5% and five years before that it was 10.65% in South Australia. So you can see that you know, there's a lot of effort going on from a regulatory perspective, but also in terms of things that we are doing as an organisation uh, to really work hard to bring pricing down. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we're 7% of the bill. So, you know, a 10% reduction in that doesn't necessarily drive a significant cost saving in the eyes of what 17 or $33 means, but it is a significant contribution that we make based on what we can control in relation to meeting our obligations. And that also in includes how we look at security, uh, reliability and affordability uh, within the state. Interestingly, and this is, a, I guess, a bit of a trivia point that not too many people know, but we understand that our revenue proposal was the first time that the AER had fully approved every cent that any network had asked for within a five-year determination period. And I think it goes to uh, the effort that we made to engage with our customers, and I can see Mark here tonight, in terms of our consumer advisory groups that we'd organised, and we used them to inform what we did. So again, the, we've tried to be informed by the greater community reflect that in terms of our proposal and I think we've come to a, you know, a very good balance in terms of price reductions but also meeting our obligations around reliability in particular. So just to follow on from, from I guess, Audrey's entree and just to, just to give you a bit of a flavour in terms of what we are doing around getting organised for summer. Uh, and again, this happens year in, year out. So what I'm about to walk through hasn't just happened because of heat waves in the last year or two or system black events a bit over two years ago. This is kind of the rigorous, uh, the rigorous activities that we are uh, organised around and obliged to, to undertake. 
Audrey showed a, a similar chart, and again, it just paints a picture uh, in terms of last summer and what we saw and the peaks and the troughs in terms of demand on a given day, uh, depending on the temperature. Where that's interesting for us, again, comes back to our role of moving power from the generators to the distribution network or to direct connect customers. So as Audrey said, as assets get a little bit older, they're a bit harder to run. They're, they're required to run faster, to be more efficient. And we're therefore very reliant on the whole system hanging together, not just the transmission component, uh, but what's happening in the generation space in particular. So again, big ranges between what we see as low demand days and high demand days. And we really do need the whole system hanging together and every component working to its maximum performance. The thing that probably keeps me awake uh, over summer are bushfires. I can remember being a kid going down to the, the surf coast in Victoria, you know, dreaming of every summer now, I kind of do the opposite, I guess, in my role. I just wanted to paint a picture in terms of uh, some of our key assets that really sit more around the metropolitan region. And we've just overlaid here with uh, some of the more recent bushfires um, that the state has seen over the last couple of years, particularly the Pinery and Samson Flat bushfires to, to the north. And obviously the big one in the middle there was Ash Wednesday back in, was it, 83? So, of course, there are many other bushfires that happen across the state uh, as well. But again, just, just wanted to paint that picture in terms of where our key asset sits and where the bulk of the population sits in South Australia. We've got a bit over a million people in the, uh, uh, I guess, in the suburban areas. And one of the issues we do have um, with bushfires is that transmission lines generally don't like them, as do uh, distribution lines as well. So, and I'll just show some pictures in a few minutes. Just in terms of what we do to manage bushfires, uh, and again, I won't run through the whole lot, but we do aerial inspections on a regular basis. Uh, we do a lot of maintenance activities that we are required to do year in, year out, day to day, week to week. <coughs> Uh, a lot of vegetation clearance work is very critical for uh, transmission lines because of flashover risk uh, and obviously work that we do within the substations uh, and right throughout the network. We have to remove things such as we need permits to remove bird nests uh, during the course of the year and that's why we do fly the network on multiple occasions because we can fly it one week and then a bird nest will appear the following week. So we do have a lot of practical things that happen um, during the course of a year and we uh, work very hard to ensure that come the bushfire season, we're really trying to work almost a month before the official start of the season, knowing that it does start in different times of the year uh, throughout different parts of the state. So why it's an issue for us, and again, these are pictures around the Freeling area uh, with uh, the Samson uh, or the Pinery bushfires uh, not that long ago. And it's probably a little bit hard to see here, but there's a, quite a, there's a transmission tower just in the middle of the photo here. And as I mentioned before, transmission lines don't like smoke, they don't like ash, they don't like uh, debris that can actually cause trips. And one of the dilemmas that we do have during summer and why, again, we go to a lot of effort to make sure that our assets are in as good a condition as they can be, is that when bushfires rage like the photos you've seen here, uh, generally the air, the air space is closed down for fire bombers. It's very hard to get visual inspections of the lines themselves and we're very reliant of all of the information that we can glean um, from a whole host of uh, different organisations that we work closely with. And obviously, as you can see, the, the size of those fires has been devastating for local communities and we are very mindful that um, even though a lot of, a lot of uh, consumers and the, and the community at large have backup generation in their own right through diesel in particular, 
not everybody does. So ensuring that electricity can get out to the remote areas to fight fires, particularly for pumping water, is very important. And we're very mindful in terms of how we can respond as quickly as possible to, to mitigate that risk. Audrey touched on uh, a couple of the organisations that we work closely with, and I won't go through them all, but there's a number that are on, on the page here. Uh, we have excellent relationships with all of the key organisations that you see there. We work very closely. We obviously have, you know, running the network 24-7 as, as Audrey and, and SA Power Networks do. Uh, so when, when anything pops up, we see it straight away. We deal with it straight away. And again, we're very mindful of putting the safety of people front and foremost in terms of our response to any of these situations and obviously work closely with emergency services in particular, especially where we don't necessarily have, um, you know, we can see things on screens, but we, we can't necessarily see things in the flesh. So the way that we do work with, with emergency services is, is very important. And particularly, I'd just like to acknowledge you know, the great work the CFS do. I think they do a lot of work, not just in the, uh, the fire uh, prevention space, um, but also the work they do just more generally for the community is, is just outstanding. Again, um, AEMO, again, is probably one of our key, um, key um, organisations that we work very, very closely with. And in particular, um, what we did touch on, this is the NEOWEN wind farm and uh, the Tesla battery just sitting here below it. Again, uh, a project that um, when we supported the state government's announcement last year, I think um, a lot of people were blown away how quickly uh, different companies could get together with government, with regulators, uh, with market operators to make things happen. And I think it's a fantastic example of when uh, we can all work together with a very, uh, with a clear uh, desired outcome, the things that the industry can do. And that is one of the challenges that we face more generally. We still uh, have to work within a regulatory regime uh, that I like to see a little bit quicker than a little bit slower uh, because technology is changing and the demands that we are seeing and the way the system operates uh, is quite important for us. I think the other thing that very, we're very mindful of here is that some of the uh, initiatives that uh, Electronet has worked closely with AEMO on uh, in order to improve the reliability or the security of the system uh, in South Australia, and that includes some of the protection work that we've seen undertaken on a couple of the projects, particularly where we do see protection controls um, being uh, enhanced to effectively prevent separation uh, from South Australia, and particularly the fact that we are heavily reliant on the Hayward interconnector, which is the main line between uh, Victoria and South Australia. I just want to spend one minute, because I'm sure I'll get some questions on it later, uh, just in terms of, again, other things that we are doing as an organisation around projects that are uh, front and centre for us and pretty topical at the moment. We released a draft report a couple of months ago in relation to op options or opportunities to look at interconnection between South Australia and the East Coast. Uh, the option that came out on top in that draft report was an option looking to extend an interconnector from South Australia into, into New South Wales and an indicative route is shown on the screen there. Uh, we've had a number of um, submissions as part of our draft report which we are working through at the moment and we're hoping to put out a conclusions report as again part of the regulatory framework that we have to operate within uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, but again, we are working very hard. Uh, we've spent millions of dollars in the studies that we've undertaken thus far. 
uh, and we do see significant market benefits for consumers. We've been on the record saying that our draft report and, and the route that we've looked at we think can, can deliver kind of savings in the order of 20 to $30 uh, per customer if you're in South Australia or New South Wales. Uh, and I think also the fact that having a second interconnector, uh, certainly from an insurance policy perspective, if I use those words, is a very important, a very important component to shoring up system security and reliability for South Australia. The other project we're doing a fair bit of work on at the moment uh, is looking at synchronous condensers uh, within South Australia. Uh, so last year, AEMO identified a system strength gap in South Australia, and we've been working with AEMO very closely. Um, since then to look at options around that, around how big is the gap, uh, what do we need to do to fill it, uh, and the work that we have undertaken demonstrates that um, building synchronous condensers is the most cost-efficient option uh, for consumers uh, to undertake. So we're working at the moment doing due diligence on, on a handful of synchronous condensers. Uh, we're also continuing our work with AEMO around fine-tuning uh, the size of those, uh, those options and working closely with the regulator in terms of bringing them and, our, and other stakeholders along um, in terms of the journey there. So as, um, as Audrey said, I think one of the things that we are very mindful of is that you know, the, the industry and a lot of um, reporting that you'll see in the media in, in terms of what is happening in the electricity space, I think to some extent is over-politicised uh, for the right-hand wrong reasons. I think we are working very hard um, behind the scenes and if you uh, use the analogy of a duck paddling, yeah, we are paddling bloody hard in terms of what we're doing uh, back in our shop and very mindful of, of doing all the things that we think are prudent, sensible and efficient uh, to make sure that we can keep the lights on through summer, but not just through summer, through the longer term. So look, I'm happy to, to leave it there. Um, I'm sure we'll get some questions later and in the interest of time, happy to throw it back to Nick. Thank you, Steve. Keep those ducks paddling. Uh, our next speaker tonight uh, is Tony Wood, who's been the Energy Program Director at the Grattan Institute since 2011, after 14 years working at Origin Energy in senior executive roles. From 2009 to 2014, he was also Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation. You probably recognise him from the television because he's one of those go-to experts that we reach out to um, for considered analysis uh, and fair and balanced analysis, and he often provides that to us. So welcome, Tony. <clears throat> I've never been accused of those sorts of things before. Um, on Sunday, uh, just gone, not only was I uh, having lunch with Roscano celebrating the uh, victory that um, his team, the Eagle, the, the uh, Western Australian uh, team had over the very popular um, Victorian team, Collingwood. But we were also um, celebrating, um, thinking about the fact that almost to the day, it was 10 years since the Garno Climate Change Review. And um, that turned out well, didn't it? <laughs> and I think what I want to do a little bit, because have you heard from people who have absolute expertise in relation to the physical side of the system? And Steve mentioned briefly the issue of politicisation of energy. Well. The challenge is that energy is political and will be, I think, for a long time. Whether you look at the somewhat um, infamous um, interview that took place between then Premier Wetherill and then Minister Frydenberg a little while ago here in South Australia, um, or some of the stuff that's gone on since then, 
pretty clear that it is political in Australia and it is political everywhere else in the world. So how you deal with politics and policy becomes one of the key challenges and we've certainly seen that play out in Australia uh, this year in relation to where people thought we might have ended up and where we've ended up so far. So I just want to talk a little bit about um, the policy implications of some of the challenges we're facing. And at the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about the fact that South Australia um, was, is, and will be for some time, I think, uh, a test case for a lot of the things that the rest of the world is having to deal with. Some would say it was a leader in, in, in renewable energy a few years ago, and then renewable energy was being blamed for the blackout in South Australia. But now I think we're in a position where some of the stuff that's being done since then, and we've learned from that, are being done into the future, suggests that South Australia may, may be one of the first places to start to look at what the future might actually be for energy systems globally. Now, you look at the, um, the challenge that the incoming new energy minister, uh, Angus Taylor, has got, and you sort of puzzle a little bit because when you look at the numbers, you say, well, look at, look at prices. Well, prices are coming down. In fact, interestingly, I noticed in Tasmania, the, the wholesale spot price in the last couple of months has been close to $40 a megawatt hour, reason being that, contrary to what's happening in New South Wales, the dams are full, in some cases overflowing. But prices are coming down. At the same time, reliability looks pretty good. The forward uh, expectation for unserved energy, which is the measure we use for reliability, is pretty much there won't be a problem for the next several years. And finally, emissions in the electricity sector are also coming down. So you look at that and you say, well, what's not to love? There doesn't seem to be a problem. Why are people concerned about um, energy policy? But then you look at it slightly differently, um, and then you think about things maybe a bit uh, aren't quite as simple as that. So looking at prices, we're now at a position where if you think about the mix of energy we have to deal with into the future, and already put up a chart that showed some of those things, pretty much everything um, we look at the wholesale, the, the marginal, the long run marginal cost of electricity that's produced, particularly when you have to balance intermittent supply, is well above $50 a megawatt hour, and something around 50 was what the wholesale price was across the NEM only uh, three years ago. It's hard to see that those numbers are going to come back down where they were uh, only three years ago because all those technology lists there, and these numbers came from the Finkel Review, suggest that that's going to be hard to do. Secondly, you look at um, reliability, and for the reasons Audrey was talking about, unless we start to do the sort of things that AMO is planning, then you start to see heightened risks of unserved energy, which means that's a technical term for blackouts. And so we don't want to see that, and so that's why you see all the things that Audrey and Steve have both been talking about. But at the moment, there are some challenges ahead to make sure that that system delivers what we want in terms of reliability. And finally, you look at greenhouse gas emissions, and while the current projections are probably suggesting that that chart on the bottom left is a little bit pessimistic in relation to electricity uh, projections. That's showing that basically <coughs> the top line, which is the most recent published forecasts from the Commonwealth government, suggests that electricity emissions will not meet the 26% target, which is the middle line by 2030, let alone federal Labor's target of 45% by 2030. Now, some numbers would suggest we're going to do better than that, but even those numbers that suggest that uh, for the overall economy, we're going to be well short of the 26% reduction in emissions. So you look at that and you say, well, the trilemma, as Minister Frydenberg described it, although uh, Prime Minister Turnbull described it as the trifecta, 
seems pretty hard. Now, a trifecta, by the way, if you look up your dictionary or thesaurus, you'll find it's got something to do with races and betting. I'm not sure we should be betting on the outcome. We'd like to think we've got something a bit more solid than that. So I think that when you look at this, this, this sort of chart, you sort of say, well, what are we going to do to navigate to a position where we don't, we can see some stability in prices, we do see a reliable system, and we do see um, reducing emissions? One of the challenges is this electricity market is being challenged by many people. I want to come back to that as my, one of my main points of these few minutes. The electricity market, the National Electricity Market, or NEM, basically was structured, was set up in 1998. The states and territories all got together and put, up, put together this concept of a national electricity market in which um, you'd have someone, in this case AEMO, it um, wasn't initially called AEMO, but that's what it is today, has the role of matching supply and demand in the way that Audrey was describing. In addition to that, not only does it have to match supply and demand instantaneously and make sure that the system remains in a reliable and secure state, but also it needs to think about how does it provide a forward price signal for new investment, particularly as um, we see things changing, like, for example, imposed emissions reduction, like we see the withdrawal of capacity as those coal plants get, get older, as it would be described. And that's another, the second role of the market. Now, for the last 20 years or so, most of that time, the market has delivered very, very well indeed. But the problem is, it's a little like you've got a child or grandchild who says that their, their toy is broken, it no longer works, and the answer when you look at them and says, well, the reason for that is you've been knocking it down the stairs for the last couple of hours, not surprisingly, it's broken. You've stuffed it up. And that's pretty well what we did for the market over the last 10 years. We basically assumed it would continue to do everything we wanted, and when it didn't do what we wanted, although it often did exactly what it was designed to do, then we got seriously annoyed and said, well, that market doesn't work. In some cases, we said we didn't want it anymore. And now we see some interesting things changing. So you knock, you knock anything around, whether it's a kid's toy or an electricity market, often it doesn't work as well as you were expecting. Now, this market was initiated, and I think it's interesting to think about when people are saying that markets don't work, that privatisation is a problem, um, that we should go back to nationalisation, and you see that is certainly the current mantra of the Greens nationally. Um, think about why we did this in the first place and what we were trying to achieve. And you see, these are some quotes from the National Competition Policy Review that was published in 1993 and resulted in one of the major results was the creation of the national <coughs> electricity market. And Paul Keating, who of course was a Labor Prime Minister, made the point that what we're looking for is free and open competition to drive efficiency. And it's the point about this is that competition policy is not the end of this game itself. And I remember one of the first times I met Audrey, she made a very strong point in relation to South Australia. The point of the market, the point of competition, is not the market. The point is to use those tools to deliver what we want, which is effective promotion of efficiency to drive economic growth and deliver the sort of environmental, social, and to some extent environmental objectives that we have. And one of the ways it was intended to do that back in 1993, 1995, 1998, was to basically change the structure of the then energy system, particularly electricity, to break up the existing structure of state-owned public monopolies and facilitate competition, particularly at the generation end, to some extent at the retail end, and where that wasn't possible, to have good regulation in the middle. And there were some warnings put out by um, uh, Hilmer at the time, Fred Hilmer, who said that we need to be careful that 
We don't let the market get out of control. We need to be careful the regulators aren't gained. Now, when you look at what's happening now, and you think about some of the interventions that are taking place, and I just use this cartoon to pause for a second, because there's a few, there has been a furious debate in recent times about we need more baseload energy and we need um, to cover that because renewable energy is not reliable and so on and so forth. And I'm not sure that either Josh Frydenberg or now Angus Taylor anticipated that why that's, that sort of drive would be pushed in the way we're talking about. And the discussion around what we mean by certain things becomes a really interesting word game, although it's a fundamentally important discussion that we have to take about what we mean by reliability, what we mean by baseload, what we mean by other things, and this cartoon exemplifies some of the challenges that creates. So I just want to summarise by coming back to some of what I think are some of the real concerns. If you look at some of the things that happen when you don't have good, credible policy, these are not the result of policy. These are the results of the absence of good policy. And so what happens is governments are forced, in many cases, to intervene, even though it's their fault. We created the problem in the first place. Because governments, because energy is political and governments can't deal with blackouts. And so there's a list here and they cover a number of jurisdictions to see what can happen. Firstly, we still have state network ownership. There's a, there are many people, commentators included, who suggest that we need that because that delivers lower prices. The facts are it doesn't. The facts are that across the country, the privately owned businesses deliver lower prices at lower cost than the publicly owned ones. The problem we had, the actual cause of some of the difficulty people were worried about, was actually poor regulation. And I don't mean a poor regulator necessarily singularly. I think some of the mechanisms and tools the regulator were given were not very good. And the answer, of course, is fix the regulatory system. And the thing that Steve reported to it towards the end of his presentation suggests that we're making some progress in that area. Then you see what happens after blackouts. Now, governments have no option except to do something. Whether they do the best thing is a different question, but they have no option to do something. In this case, South Australia, the government at the time, did a number of things in response to the blackout. The real cause, of course, was a combination of weather and system-related things from which we have learned a lot. And of course, the right answer is to fix the management tools, and that's what Audrey's job is. But secondly, we have to get our climate change policies right and think about the way the market responds to the changing system. In Queensland, we had a situation where the generators were clearly um, behaving in a way which was in their interest but were not in the interest of the market. The Queensland government that owned the generators said, stop it, and they did. Problem is that that sort of political interference is not exactly a recipe for ongoing stable policy, particularly for investment. And a better option is, is what ACCC said, split up and privatised. And the rest of these are like that. There are a number of interventions in which governments are either directing investing in, taking control of, or whatever, the energy system. And the question I think we've got to ask ourselves at some point is, is that what we want? Because it would be a great pity, and I should have highlighted that point at the top of this slide, it would be a great pity just to stumble forward and have a whole range of these interventions, both at a state and a federal level, and find five or 10 years' time we've ended up with a, and, and, and we didn't mean to get there, a regulated, centrally planned, uh, basically renationalised energy system. Even if there are private owners of the businesses, all the risk, which should be with market participants, ends up being with the consumer or the taxpayer. And 
Therefore, I think we need to be very careful about this. When you look at where we are now in 2018, we've got some very important choices ahead of us. And this can sound like a bit of an arcane um, point to be making this evening, but I think it's a very important one as we try and take the next steps forward in the, in the next year or so, particularly if we do see a change of government. Um, and even if we see a return federal government um, of the coalition, I think there'll be a change of um, direction on energy policy. I don't, I'd like to think it won't be quite as political as it has been. Firstly, we can leave the market alone and hope that it actually, once we leave it alone, it will get on and deliver the things we want. Secondly, we could um, uh, develop what I would call a reasonable emissions mechanism, and you'll see from the bottom of this slide, we've tried a whole lot so far, and maybe one day we'll get back to thinking about what the right one should have been. Um, and, a and we have to think about whether we need a mechanism for some form of capacity payments, particularly when you've got a lot of uh, low marginal cost renewable supplies we do in South Australia, do you need some other market mechanism to deliver the capacity you need when those circumstances arise that both Steve and Audrey were talking about? Or thirdly, we could say this is all too hard, we should start again um, and try and design the system from scratch. Now, the, the good news is there's, there has been enough reviews and enough work done. The Finkel review, which emerged from the South Australian blackout, basically came up with a number of 50 recommendations that could be adopted by the Coag Energy Council and created the Energy Security Board to do just that. The Energy Security Board made some recommendations, which don't have to be the NEG. We all know what happened with the NEG, National Energy Guarantee, but made some very specific recommendations around what would be needed. Audrey's already referred to the Integrated System Plan, which is, a, which is an engineering systems design. It doesn't mean that you know, Audrey has got to go out and build all this stuff. But it does mean that there is a direction that you can see and we'll have to test those things. And finally, there's the ACCC report on the affordability of electricity, which itself had quite a number of recommendations. We are not short of recommendations or ideas. The real challenge, I think, is for the Coag Energy Council, which is the council of all the state and territory ministers chaired by the Commonwealth, to actually put together an agenda of those things that would be important and make a difference and focus on those and, for heaven's sake, deliver them in the next five to ten years. At the same time, we might, I think, want to keep an eye on this issue that I've been raising, and that is, do we actually want to make sure that we understand the role of markets and competition? Because there are lots of people who would like to suggest that we should be going in a different direction. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. I'd like to invite our three panellists up to the stage to join us for a bit of a chat, if I can. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we will be coming to you for your questions, so I'll, I'll ask a few, but if you've got some, um, keep them to the top of mind, and um, we will be sending a microphone, perhaps this microphone, around the room a little bit later on. <laughs> Audrey, perhaps we might start with you, given that you're the one that's going to be in the hot seat should this hot summer emerge and things don't go right. Can you just take us through um, the summer readiness plan that you put in place the past two years um, has involved something called the RERT, which is something we haven't seen for a while um, in terms of management of the system. Can you just take us through what those measures are and why you've needed to take them and, and I guess, um, the benefits of managing summers this way? So um, what we have, it's, it's the reliability, I'm not sure what you, emergency reserve trader. Uh, basically, 
what what emo does is, is that we have the ability if we feel that there's not enough resources out there based on our forecast and we see an energy gap to go out and procure buy resources that will sit outside the market but will be available to us just in case we need it. And the type of resources that are, are very typical would be, for example, an aluminum smelter. And I will not learn how to say this in Australian, so you can just stop asking. But basically, we ask them to reduce their demand for an hour or two during the periods of peak. Now, that makes a lot of sense if you're a smelter, because if you're out for more than an hour or two, then you have real problems with your pot lines. So they would rather actually drop their demand and get paid for it rather than wait to have the system fail. So we have a lot of resources like that that we're looking for that, that aren't necessarily in the market but would help us shape that peak. Uh, the others would be the types of resources that we've, I've mentioned around, for example, in Queensland, which we don't have here, but I think it's a great program and something I want to work with SABN on, is rotating pool pumps. Now, pool pumps provide, if you can take someone's pool pumps off for just 10 minutes, they don't notice that. If we do that in aggregate, that could end up looking like a power plant you just took off the system. It doesn't disturb anyone, but it helps reduce demand. So what we're looking for at AEMO is actually thinking about how you use information better and avoid the problem, not necessarily building more power plants, but take bringing resources into the system that otherwise would not be in there, and as a result, help reduce uh, reduce the risk of blackouts. So let me just put this in perspective because there was a, some discussion last year around uh, how much was paid. So we ended up paying roughly $60 million for the program last year. Now $60 million translates into about $6.50 per consumer. So when you think about this, think about your life insurance policy. No one ever wants to use their insurance policies, but we all know we need insurance. And so the question is, is, is $6.50 a good buy to avoid the risk? Because if we're even out for two hours or four hours, we saw with the system black, it's a lot more expensive than $6.50 a year. And so what we think about is you're more surgical, you're more discreet, and you try to reduce the price, obviously get as low as possible. But what you want to do is give people the insurances that when it gets super hot, when a power plant fails, when we have a bushfire, we have an alternative plan, and, that, and that's what the work's all about. Tony, I want to ask you a little bit about that, because you spoke about market interventions and the fact that sometimes they cost more. What do you make of the need for AEMO and others to intervene in the market with things like this? And demand response, which we're talking about there, which is, um, I guess, dealing with the, uh, the demand side of the equation rather than the supply side. How do you see that? panning out in the next few summers? I guess the thing you have to start with is think about electricity and the way it works. Um, compare it with emissions, if a company has an obligation to reduce its emissions and it doesn't make it this year, it can make it up next year. If the lights go out this year, you can't make it up by having brighter lights next year. It just doesn't work that way, right? So there is a need to match supply and demand. And I think it's, it's difficult to see how you could um, not have a system in which there is a, a backup. Now, the, the really important issue here is, and I think this is where AMO's work on the route, for example, is, 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 is critical, is that, that it's not a random intervention, that everybody knows the rules by which AMO will intervene in the market. And when it does, it does it through a defined process. So it's not like we never know what's going to happen. You've got a set of rules, 
All the participants in the market know exactly how AMO is going to do that, and they do it, and it works under those circumstances. It's not intervention in the market, it's actually working with the market when the market does certain things, because they, and that will happen. On the demand side, I guess one of the interesting things is we're actually, most of us, now this is not true, there will be people that say, isn't it terrible, isn't it third world, that we don't have enough electricity to turn on the switch whenever we want, as much electricity as we want the entire year. Now, we've seen the consequences of trying to run the system that way. It is bloody expensive. A significant amount of the resources in this system are used for tiny numbers of hours a year. And it wouldn't require very much at all, using the sort of things Audrey's talking about, to change that dramatically. You can actually significantly reduce to peak demand and that has an enormous impact. And by these, and these days, not only can you do that through the sort of technology that Audrey's talking about, so you don't have to turn off the whole house, you just turn off the pool pump, turn off the electric vehicle charging system, which we'll have in the future, right? So they don't all, all come on at once. At the same time, you can, you can do commercial deals with large industrials particularly, who are more than happy to write a commercial arrangement to reduce their demand today, because they can make it up tomorrow. Make whatever widgets they're making today. So I think the role of demand response is still something in Australia we're still coming to grips with. AMO did a fantastic job last year in securing quite a bit. I don't think you got as much as you were looking for, but I think that's something we're all learning about. The role of, the, of that side of things is just as important as the supply side. Can I, can I, let me just add to this, because I do think there's this, just this total misunderstanding. Um, you know, the power system has always been power system, you always have to keep it in balance. The last thing you want to do is reduce demand in terms of uh, what we call blackouts. Actually, we call it load shedding events. The difference between a blackout and a load shedding event is blackouts are uncontrolled. Load shedding events are controlled, where we'll deliberately reduce demand in one area just to, to help the system rebalance. But nobody wants to do that. But on the other hand, we now have a digitalization of our society. We have the ability to use these resources. And the question I would ask you, would you prefer that we build a power plant, a transmission line, and distribution line just in case one in 10 years we might need it? Or would you say, well, we have all these smart devices. We can manage them better. And actually, we can pay people to participate in the system, which would be cheaper than building power plants that may only be needed once in a while. And so most societies, most markets now have said, really, we're moving to a two-way system. And what we're really talking about is how do we manage usage in a way that it's not disruptive because when we're cycling those pool pumps, you don't even know it. But it's for us, it's the difference between having to do an involuntary reduction in load versus helping people be smarter users and actually paying them for that because it's a resource to the system. To me, that's just a 21st century way of managing a power system. It has nothing to do about a failure. It's actually just being smart and modern. I am getting concerned about that light that keeps dimming over there because that would be embarrassing if, if it was if they go out. <laughs> Everyone's looking at you, Rob. Uh, Steve, uh, just on that question of, um, I guess, how distributed energy and demand management might work, is it? Given the rapid changes we're seeing in technology, is that now something that you are having to factor into your plans about where new transmission might need to be built and how the system will operate? Yeah, look, look, I would certainly agree with all the comments that Audrey and Tony made. I think one of the things that, again, is part of the way that we've been working with consumer groups in particular is that consumers want choice. And, and we're very mindful of, as a transmission business that yeah, we are building assets that can last 50, 60, 70 years. So 
you know, many of us in the room probably won't be around in 70 years' time, but I can tell you engineers love to talk and think about it in terms of what it looks like. Um, so we are mindful that technology is, is playing a very big role in the concept of how people think about the cost of power tomorrow, what it means in three years' time, five years, and so on. Uh, so we're very mindful of, um, I guess, the interplay between effectively long-lived assets versus other opportunities. And, and, and just to maybe, maybe supplement to some of the comments that, that Audrey and, and Tony made, I mean, I think there's just a, a common sense approach here too. I mean, we talk about, um, you know, pool pumps and the like. I mean, I, I just think there's a lot, a, lot, a lot more things that the community at large can do from a common sense perspective to conserve energy. I mean, I, I drive my kids nuts at home about turning the lights off if you're not in the room. Are you watching that TV over there? Um, I'm not sure how many people here have been to Japan in summer, just a show of hands out of interest. If you go into a, into a big building in Japan, the, the, the air conditioning is not set at 18 degrees, it's about 26. And again, you think about the size of the population there in terms of dialing uh, and the amount of energy that's required in a city like Tokyo when you're running all of your uh, air conditioning at a 26 degree setting versus 18, it's, it's significant. And I think there's an education piece and perhaps that's up to all of us and also government perhaps to, to think about how we just you know, paint the picture to uh, the community at large in terms of the little things they can do that actually make a big difference. Now we're talking about long-lived assets. Um, I guess it's timely to talk to you about that interconnector. How far are we off a decision and perhaps seeing an interconnector to New South Wales being built? From your perspective, can you talk us through some of the benefits and also I guess some of the criticisms, if you like, we heard of, about an interconnector from the previous state government here was that it would displace generators in South Australia. What's your um, research into this showing you? Good question. Thanks, Nick. Um, look, I could talk, talk about this issue for an hour or two, but um, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Look, I think the work that we have done, you know, we, we put out a report a couple of years ago in relation to you know, a need that we saw and primarily driven from a market benefit perspective. And we released a draft report in June this year, and that did show that under a range of scenarios that building an interconnector would be highly economic. And by that, I mean it should uh, generate significant uh, market benefits, which theoretically lead to lower wholesale prices. And the types of numbers we threw around uh, were indicatively a billion dollars of market benefits that roughly translates into about a $20 saving, or $30 saving, I think, for South Australian customer, uh, and around $20 for a New South Wales customer. Um, we've put out our draft report. We're, at the moment, um, analysing a whole bunch of submissions that we've received um, following the report, uh, and our current plan is to have a conclusion, that what's defined as a, we'll call it a conclusions report, um, that will be published, we hope, uh, before Christmas this year. Uh, and I think, directionally, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you know, I think um, you know, shows similar results to what we've seen in the draft report. You know, we've looked at a whole host of options up and down the east coast from Queensland into Victoria. Uh, we've looked at um, HV versus, oh, sorry, DC versus AC. Um, and I don't think there's anything that I'm aware of at the moment that's fundamentally going to change directionally where that goes, but we still need to go through the process and, and are certainly entertaining all of the, you know, the, the, the good and interesting feedback that we've had from, from people that have taken the time to put submissions in. Audrey, um, I wanted to ask you about some of the other interventions that have had to take place in the past couple of years, in particular in this state. You mentioned the, the battery um, in your speech, um, but the other intervention we've had both in this state and in Victoria is the installation of those temporary generators. To what extent are they uh, governments taking that sort of, uh, I guess, almost remedial action 
beneficial to AEMO or is that something that you would just simply rather manage yourself through your own process? Um, well, you know, obviously the government, the, the diesels that were placed in Victoria was actually part of the, I think, the road process, actually. But, you know, I, you know the, um, I think the, the fact of the matter is, is that we need to make sure that the markets work best. And this is exactly what Tony was talking about. You know, the, the, the reason we have government intervention is, is that someone sitting outside, sitting in the market, would take a look at the price signal and make a decision as to whether or not that they're going to make enough money to go ahead and invest. And one of the challenges that we have today, it's sort of some people might say it's a high class opportunity, but it is a challenge we have to think about, is that if you're a generator, you're a gas generator or someone like that, it's going to take you two to three years to build a power plant. You got to make sure you have the fuel's available. But then you have to go to the bank and convince them that the revenues are going to be there over the next 20 to 30 years for them to be able to invest with confidence because that's, that there is no obligation to serve. It's not a regulated asset. And so the question then becomes is why aren't they investing? Well, the reason they're not investing, even though we see these prices being sometimes spot prices being higher, is, is the lack of a forward policy that gives people the ability to say, this is what the policy is going to be. But also, there's a missing money issue. And a missing money issue is this, is it takes you six months to build a big solar and wind plant, but the marginal cost, the cost of operating those plants, are next to zero, compared to a gas plant where you're going to have ongoing operating expense, and it's somewhat riskier to build. So what, what we need to do, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to look at the integrated system plan, it has a great deal of clarity in the market and the system of what do we need for dispatchable resources, things like that that we use, we need to be able to manage, making sure we're only looking at what we actually need to manage the system. So we're maximizing the productivity of the existing resources, hence the building out of the networks and thinking about how do we use demand. But then, if in fact we do need additional investment <coughs> in dispatchable resources, having a market that supports the recognition that for the market to manage the system, the system has to be flexible, meaning that we have to be willing to pay people to put in resources that AMO can call on when they need it and get paid for that availability. And so it's thinking through this issue of how the system has changed since it was first designed. And the fact is, is that people are making rational decisions and say, if I put up a gas plant, I'm not sure if I'm going to get paid enough money to recover it, and the banks aren't going to fund it. So we have to sit back and say, how do we need to think about the markets moving forward to, to do that? In the absence of that, AEMO and the government are never going to be in a position that we're going to allow um, people's interest in having secure and reliable energy to be compromised. And so, yes, we'll take action, but I'll never apologize for doing things that I think are, are right for the security of Australians. Maybe I'll come to questions from the floor in a moment, but on that thorny policy issue, um, you know, we were told that, you know, we've got the the, re the renewable energy target, which is incentivising uh, renewables, but that we're not going to get any new dispatchable power until we have a policy that deals with the trilemma, with uh, all three things, including climate policy. We now have climate policy, I think, off the off the table again at the federal level. What does that mean for new investment in the power system? What it means is the sort of things that Audrey's talking about. People will still invest, but they will invest in different things. 
Because uh, if, you, if you've got uncertainty, you're going to invest in things that keep lots of options open. You tend to invest in things that are going to be more expensive. Uh, and there's going to be risk premiums on top of this. And so you end up with a, a far more expensive system. And in addition to that, the very when you've got that situation, it creates the circumstances that Audrey's talking about, that governments will intervene, or the AMO will intervene. And the very idea that private investors are going to think that that's what's going to happen is going to deter them itself. So you end up with this very horrible um, circular situation in which you know, a good example is what's going on in, you know, in New South Wales with the threat of what the Liddell power station. The Audrey showed then it's expected to be shut in 2022. And you, I suspect many people have followed the somewhat inglorious debate between Amazing how many politicians have disappeared from the, from the agenda recently. I mean, previous Prime Minister Turnbull, previous Minister Frydenberg, previous Premier Weatherall. But I mean, the issue there was that you know, they were basically saying that we have to make sure that this thing continues. And of course, as soon as they start saying we want to keep Liddell open, what does that do? It deters anybody who's seriously thinking about investing to replace Liddell. So you get exactly the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. So getting to a situation, and I am a little bit more optimistic at the moment, that I think these issues are understood. The problem has been in the very short history, recent history, is the, you know, quite frankly, the internal politics of the Liberal Party and the coalition. And I think that, whatever happens at the next federal election, I'm more optimistic that that will flush itself out and we'll start to see something that looks like the sort of framework we're talking about. Now, I don't think we're going to see, you know, immensely straightforward policy to 2050, but we'll start to see it heading in a much better direction. Nick, right. if I can just jump in too, because I, I think one thing that's also relevant in, in this discussion is the fact that a lot of stakeholders, doesn't matter what side of politics you're on or people's views on, on businesses, are looking for the perfect solution. They're looking for the perfect answer. And I think we're never going to find it. And, and I think there's an interesting opportunity um, to you know, interested in people's views just around, you know, sometimes the second best solution you can implement is better than waiting forever and a day for a perfect solution that never comes. And, and I think that is one of the challenges that we do have, where there's a very broad church of ideas and concepts and beliefs that, that people have, whether it's philosophical or technical. And the reality is the more we spin our wheels, the more we're digging a hole for ourselves. And I think there is a, you know, a point in time where, uh, and I think you know, the ISP is a very good example of trying to herd the cats to some extent to say, here is the whole picture for us all to think about, as opposed to dealing with these issues in a segmented or, or fragmented way. Um, so it is an interesting dilemma because we're all caught up under rules, under regulatory regimes, under investment approaches and the like. Um, but we are dealing with a whole bunch of issues in the air uh, and the sooner that some of these balls drop, the better. All right. Well, I did say I'd take some questions from the floor, so hopefully uh, some of you have some ideas. We might pass this mic around. Actually, we'll still Tony's mic so he can't answer them. Uh, someone want to pop on over there? A very simple question. What's a synchronous condenser? I've, I've never heard of it before, I'm sorry, and I'm sure others haven't either. All right, Do you Steve. want to take it, order? you want me to? It's, it's effectively, a, like a, effectively a spinning motor, so it just helps to kind of keep the momentum or the frequency going through uh, the, the system. So it's not necessarily connected as a, as a generator per se, but just a large mass effectively that's, uh, that's rotating. By way of explaining this, Audrey, we're not really getting full value at the moment out of our wind farms, are we? Because you're having to intervene at the moment to, um, to support the system strength, is that right? Right. So in order to manage the power system, we need to have a certain level of spinning mass that's just going on on the system. And one of the challenges 
in, in Australia compared to other systems is that we have the longest, stringiest system. And so what happens is if, if it's almost like, you know, think about going down a road in a very small car and you hit a bump and you feel it. If you're going down a road in a big truck and you hear feel a bump, you don't feel it. And so we need those big trucks on the system to absorb some of the system changes. So a synchronous condenser is like a big generator that's helping us manage the system because it provides that inertia. Hopefully that answers your question. Inertia is a very, very difficult thing to explain. <laughs> um, question down the front here. Mark Vincent, SA Power Networks. Um, Audrey, question for you, I'm afraid. Um, you talked about maximum demand. Can you tell us a bit about what you're thinking about minimum demand and the stress that might place on the state and maybe ideas AMO has to manage that going forward? So this is a really interesting question. We always worry about this power system about what happens when the peak goes up. Now in South Australia, particularly in the wind in, in, in the, in the uh, spring and the fall, uh, where we have high solar days and very low demand, we're seeing very low demand. In fact, to the point where some of we're very concerned that we can't maintain the voltage of the system. So we actually have to start thinking, and this again is, you know, we're working with the networks to start beginning to think about how do we manage voltage on the system when we have these very low demand days, which gets back again to thinking about how do we use the resources such as storage to start actually increasing demand during the afternoons so we don't run into these voltage issues. So we're, we're working with the networks to get there. We have to have the rules in place to reward that. And we have to start thinking about how we use storage better because the issue is, is if we don't get there, we're, we just need to start reducing what we can do on solar rooftops. So one of the things, I didn't show a slide today, but you know, the, the growth in solar, rooftop solar in Australia is phenomenal. It's well surpassing anywhere else in the world. And I could see, you know, right now we're about one in three. We could get into one in two. We're hitting tipping points where it just becomes what people do. As power system operators, uh, we don't want to ever say to someone, you can't do what you want to do. So we have to learn how to create the networks, how to create the rules to oblige that and take advantage of other technologies that are, are going to get us there. Okay, I had a question about uh, pricing mechanisms for load shedding. Is there, what, what, what does that look like at the moment and who has access to that? Like small businesses, large businesses, who, retailers? So there's a there's a I guess this is to me there's a rule pending at the Australian Energy Market Commission to start thinking about how we can use how do we pay for demand. So if you think about it from AEMO's AEMO's perspective, um, as as we've been saying, our job is pretty straightforward. In order to keep the power system operational, supply and demand needs to balance out, and it has to balance out all hours. From our perspective, someone willing to reduce their demand. Um, in response to us sending a price signal is the same as someone <coughs> willing to increase their generation output as long as it keeps balance. Now obviously there's different ways to do it to aggregate <coughs> it. So one of the, um, in the US, um, one of the things we do in these markets is that if there is someone who's willing to reduce demand, we pay them the same price as we would pay a generator who is willing to increase their output. So it would be the, price of where demand and supply equal out. So it's basically a resource on the system. Um, that's the, what's under consideration of, under the commission. What I would like to see, my sort of dream on all this is 
you don't sort of run the system up to peak and then cut demand. You actually cut demand in advance of the peak and pay people the value of that in advance so you never hit the peak. That, that actually is the greatest benefit because then what's happening is you're not allowing the prices to go up. You're actually, think about this, would you rather pay your neighbor $5 to run their storage or would you rather pay a generator $10? Most people would say, well, I'll pay my neighbor. I like them better. Another question over here. Oh, sorry, Tony wants to buy on that one. Come to you in a minute. I'm going to take that a little bit further because um, there's the large customers who, for whom a straightforward commercial deal, either with their retailer or directly with the market, would say, right, we're going to do what Audrey was describing. Normally, our price is we're, you know, we're paying $80 a megawatt hour. There may be someone who's prepared to charge, pay them. $200 a megawatt hour for a short period of time, and it's perfectly commercially sensible. They don't turn the plant off, they just reduce their consumption. The other ones are, we get a little bit more interesting, and one is where, and there's two examples I'll give you. One is where the, we change the pricing mechanism, because clearly the value of electricity, particularly when you get all the solar in the system, is changing dramatically across the day. So the value of solar, potentially, in the middle of the day is zero. We don't want any more. We can't deal with it. You have the problems Audrey's talking about. So what do you do? What you do is you give people the incentive to store that electricity in a battery and use it later in the day. So that changes the economics of batteries. And I think the innovators, the people who start making money in this space, are the people who will do that and put those deals together. And we'll see a lot more of that. And that's one of the reasons why I think we need to maintain a competitive retail market so people will do that. The second example I'll give you will be the sort of stuff that um, companies like PowerShop have done, where they've basically done deals with their customers and they did a couple of these in the last four months or so where they said, look, under certain circumstances, we're going to send you a text message and you know, PowerShop customers are pretty nerdy people. Um, well, does anybody want to volunteer? We'll pay them 50 bucks to reduce their output. And lots of people did. So there's a lot more innovation coming into this space and all that demand type potential which can be unearthed and make a big difference to both the, the total, not just the demand, but also ultimately the total cost of the system, because ultimately the network and the generators don't have to be as big as it would have to be if we're trying to meet peak demand all the time. Okay. Uh, just over here, question. Thanks. I'm interested in um, what you see the role of uh, gas being um, in the South Australian system, because it was talked about always as a kind of intermediate um, sort of fuel, and we've got AGL and Origin who've both put up um, sort of development proposals, but with a range of renewable resources, Sanjeev Gupta and home batteries and a range of other things, can, can you see um, that there's going to be a demand for the kind of firming that, that was anticipated for gas in this state? Uh, well, in, in the integrated system plan, we think there is going to be a role for gas for firming and that would, could be here as well as in other states. So I, you know, I, having gas that can, can move very quickly, you see, will be a valuable part of, of the future. Um, and in, in the plan, what, what AMO calculated, and again, this is, you know, we didn't, we didn't have the outcome and then tried to back it in as this came out of the analysis we did, is that relatively the role of gas going forward in the future is going to be about what it is today. So it's not going to change very much. We may change the nature of the power plants. We'll probably be faster moving power plants. But um, we, you know, for us, it's gas. I mean, think about when you think about Australia and you think about sort of like you know other parts. You're, we're always going to have to have a, a certain level of dispatchable resources. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this as a prediction. Is this is what will happen? 
But for AMO, we want to be technology neutral. We're always going to do it the least cost. Based on what we're forecasting as cost today, there will be a, a role for gas. But the issue is going to be, it's really around the price of fuel. And so, you know, in order for gas to, to, to beat out wind and solar, and this is analysis that we've done and others have validated, is that the price of, of gas per petajoule has to be less than $6. And nobody's forecasting that that's what's going to be right now. We're 10 to 12. So the question is, is how do you make it economically work? And this gets back to my point of an investor is looking at that and saying, well, how am I going to compete against the new wind plant or solar plant that's coming in that's so much cheaper? I think it's a really good question, and, and I would concur with, uh, with Audrey's comments. I mean, a lot of the analysis that we've done would suggest, uh, unless you're seeing long-term gas in the South Australian market sub $6 a gigajoule, um, other investment options are, uh, from an electricity pricing perspective make more sense. Um, of course, you've also got gas required for gas consumers as opposed to electricity generators as well. And that's, again, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, um, I guess, material in the media um, and all sorts of other independent reports in relation to what high gas pricing is doing to uh, commercial uh, businesses right across the East Coast as well. So it's a big issue, um, but again, it's, a, it's also a political issue in terms of, of you know, examples such as um, you know, the lack of new gas acreage being opened up right across um, whether it's South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales. So gas is a really topical issue, and particularly since we've seen, you know, traditional gas sellers, such as, such as the participants in Moomba, so you've talked about whether the Santos or the Origins and the AGLs effectively become integrated uh, LNG players <coughs> up in Queensland. But again, that, the gas that's being used there would not, would not have got out of the ground either, uh, unless it was underpinned by high gas prices for export markets. So it is a it is an interesting dilemma around the role that gas plays, but of course it's the only it's the it's the source of the only synchronous generation in South Australia at the moment as well. Okay, I'm conscious that time is catching up on us, but we probably have time for a couple more questions. Thank you, uh, Graham Davies. Given that the NEG is and we've had problems with the policy, is it time to rethink some of the the key objective? And when you hear about reliable, affordable. And, but we need to add in secure power as well as quality power. And by that, at the end of the grid, the voltage and the frequency fluctuation, because that affects equipment when you're getting this, this deviation, which means someone at the end of the grid who can feed in as required and demand management has more value than someone inside the system. So that would be a key objective. And then as a separate objective is let all industries cover their own externalities. So the energy has to cover climate and any other environmental degradation, but so must transport, which is about a third of energy in, in Australia. And then, in a way, splitting the two might actually be beneficial to climate policy because it's very clear, off, as you said, seven policies, they, have, they haven't been tied together, split it, but each industry has to pay for its own externalities. Perhaps I might come to Audrey on that security question. Or, or, uh... I think in terms of security and power voltage, I mean, this is really one of the things that's very important is as we become more power dependent, issues such as power quality are going to be very critical. And being able to actually make the, the um, essentially pricing a little bit more granular, what the value is, and one of the things that I would like to see us do is, is actually look at value-based pricing on distributed energy. So. If we do it right, for example, we can use these resources to provide voltage and the type of support 
and we ought to get our pricing so that people could be paid for accurate value for what services they're providing. So yes, I think we can get there. And one of the things that the that we're as we're starting to look at uh, different market designs, these are the types of issues that I, I would expect that we we begin to grapple. I think the, um, the this one issue is the sort of well, if you, if you had your rivals, and then there's what Steve said earlier. I think that policy that actually gets done is a damn sight better than those we think about. And I'm, I'm not really excited about sitting in this room in 2028 talking about the minutiae of some new version of a policy because all those things we've tried, even though the experts, and I used to think I might have been one of those people, will debate the detail around why. Uh, CPRS was better than an ETS, was different from CET, all this sort of stuff. They're fundamentally the same bloody thing. There isn't that much difference when you come down to it. I mean, they're supposed to reduce emissions by a certain amount. So we've mucked around with this now for the last 10 or 15 years and we still haven't got anywhere. And the only thing we've left standing was the renewable energy target, which did what it did, um, but it was never intended to be a climate policy, it was an industry policy. So now I think we'll be, it's very scary territory for policymakers because they're, ten, they're so tentative around this question. They're not game to go back to what might have been first best policy. They're trying to work out what is fourth or fifth best policy around how we move forward. And the, one of the challenges, and one of the challenges to watch for in the next few months ahead of the next Commonwealth or federal election is this. <coughs> the Commonwealth has been grappling with a 26% target for electricity and 26% target for the economy, reducing emissions by 2030. Electricity one, even though the last set of numbers said we're, we're still well short, we'll probably get pretty damn close. We may even go past it. Um, even Morrison said we're going to go, go do it in a canter, I think. I'm not sure what horse racing has got to do with all this, but there's another version. A trifecta um, coming back. But yeah, the, and so then I think the issue is going to be when they start to think about, well, as you said, electricity is a substantial part. It's 33% or 34% of our total emissions. We've got transport and agriculture is really hard. Right? So when you think about that, for federal labour who've got a 45% target for the economy and a 45% target for electricity, that's really hard to make those numbers add up. So I think what you're going to have to, so it's the way in which they creep up on, how do we deal with the artificiality of putting all this thing into sectors and saying each sector's got to do its certain amount of share is a dumb idea, but they're stuck in that space because they think it's too politically dangerous to go back to the emissions trading scheme idea, how they get out of that and move towards starting with, I don't really care much whether it's an energy emissions intensity scheme or a neg or whatever, but how we start and then move towards something which will be more sensible in the long run, that's going to be the interesting debate, I think, around climate policy, because right now it's just off the agenda for a while. Okay, very quickly, Steve, and then we might, uh, we might go to one more before we wrap. Yeah, I think just going to, to Graham's question too, I mean, one of the things that you were talking about, trifectas and trilemmas or whatever, whatever the trios of issues, but all of the, you know, the consumer work that we have done over the past two or three years, price always comes out on top as the biggest single issue. So whilst we're trying to balance choice, affordability, reliability, price always comes out number one. And again, it goes a bit to what is it politicians or policymakers are trying to solve for? We're solving for a fairly broad church of interrelated issues that mean different things in different states. And again, you can put 100 people in the room, you'll get, you know, a broad spectrum of, of perspectives, which makes it hard going back to, to policymakers and the like, in terms of what is a what is a policy that's going to get up. Uh, um, one last question from Mark. Try and um, try and keep it. Uh... I'll try and try and be quick. Mark Henley and I work with United Communities, and I thank um, Steve for mentioning the word price because that's what I want to ask about. I mean, just as quick story, our financial counsellors report that um, 
Energy prices is easily the number one presenting issue, and prices have just kept on going up and up and up, irrespective of the policy pronouncements for, for some time. So, final question, when are my clients going to see some good news on price? Can I go first? Because Mark actually sat on our consumer <laughs> advisory panel. So, I mean, I think it's one thing that from an electronet perspective, we were very mindful of in terms of how we shaped our revenue proposal. So, you know, we are delivering price reductions for our 7% of the, the total bill. Um, and I think, you know, you're quite within your rights, Mark, to kind of, you know, maintain, if you like, the rage and keep keep us all honest in terms of where that goes. But, um, but I mean, costs are very, are very topical. Um, and even just from, I guess, you know, the broader industry perspective in terms of just the day-to-day -day cost to run businesses such as Electronet or other utilities across the NEM, let alone uh, what's happening with other fuels, which I think is also a massive contributor to, to those costs. But again, I think I like to think that we're playing our part and I like to think the industry is also playing its part as well. So I think some of the graphs that, that Tony pointed to, yeah, we are seeing pricing softening, but I still think prices will be high for a little while to come. Audrey, do you have a view I mean, as we move towards more of this um, you know, zero marginal operating cost energy? Is there a hope that one day we'll see something much cheaper than we were at? Sure. So I, you know, I think that um, what we need to do is we have to be just realistic about what are the things that are going to be happening on the system that we need to get done, and then how do we manage the markets and the system to, to really look at how do we take advantage of the technology changes. A lot of the discussions that we had tonight are around how do we make the system more productive, which is around how do we use all the resources we have. Uh, that's one piece. Second is to be realistic about what drives prices. Uh, certainly fuel costs have a big impact on wholesale prices and so if coal and gas prices go up because there's uh, external markets that people are selling into, Australia is going to look at that and that, that does have, have an impact on us. We have to think about what we can do to counter that kind of impacts. And um, I think that, you know, the third thing is good planning. I mean, I, there's no question, and this is, I think, the hard reality we're just going to have to start thinking about. As these plants retire, we have to replace them. The problem we've got is, is that we're replacing them on a smaller pool of buyers than we had when we were building them. And you're talking about wholly de um, totally depreciated assets being replaced by new assets. And so you have to think about all that, which is why one of the things that EMO is recommending is that we take the existing asset base and we look to see how we can optimize that for as long as we can. One of the ways we can do that is, is we think about the fact that we have excess power sitting in Queensland that wouldn't it make a, be a big mistake to build a new power plant in New South Wales or build a new power plant in Victoria just having and having an excess power plant sitting in Queensland just for want of a transmission line. And so we thinking about it as a whole of system, thinking about really the goal, as is what Tony was saying, the role, the role of all of this should be not around protecting competitors, but what's best for consumers. And if it was your company or, and you wanted to compete, wouldn't you say I would rather sweat the assets I have for as long as I can in the most economically efficient way I can? Because I know at some point I'm going to have to replace them, just like your car in your garage, and you want to do it at an optimal point. And you want to take advantage of the fact that we're seeing these reductions in technology costs. And so let's ride that yield as long as we can 
to make sure that when we do have to replace those plants, we have the best options available to us. So I, it's, there's an, it's an all of the above solution as opposed to a single solution. And I think one of my concerns in this industry, and I'll just, I don't often opine on this, is we keep trying to find like that one silver bullet. It's not a one silver bullet. It's not one thing we have to do. We have to kind of do an all of the above. Tony, to finish up, optimistic or pessimistic on price? I'm always optimistic, actually. <laughs> um, I think the, 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 and I'm optimistic in a way that you might think, you might share my optimism in this, in this particular comment, and that is that if you look at the underlying cost of this stuff, then on the wholesale side, I still, the cost of producing electricity, I have great difficulty. I mean, there'll be times when it'll move up and down. I mean, we may have oversupply as we had in the past. If oversupply prices come down, something shuts, and it goes up again, right? That's what we've seen. That's what we've seen quite recently. We may see a bit more of that as this wave of more zero marginal cost renewables comes into the system, but then something else will happen and prices will go up again. When you think about the cost of that electricity, if it's going to have the sort of characteristics that broadly speaking Audrey's talking about, it seems to me that about where we are now is about where it's going to be for quite some time. Now, I don't think, I do not see how gas gets down to $6 a gigajoule ever again. It was a long time. I don't do forecasting. But I mean, that, so it's hard to see how that's going to come down much below that, right? Then you've got the other pieces, right? We've got, we've got the, the network side. The sort of stuff that Steve's talking about is having an impact, right? Those, those changes in those discount rates, they sound a bit arcane. They're small percentages of really big numbers. That's a big deal. And some of the stuff that was overspent in some of the other states, my point before about government-owned network businesses, also needs to be addressed because consumers are paying for stuff that was overbuilt and we should get rid of that off our balance sheet somehow or other because we're all paying for that. Now, that's not so much a South Australian issue, it's the other states. And then finally, retail. I mean, whilst I don't think that, I think the ACCC's report did not show that there were enormous profits being made, despite what um, uh, Richard Natale has been claiming, the profits are higher than they should be the profit margins in the retail sector. And more competitors doesn't fix that. We know that because Victoria's got more competitors and it's got, it's got the highest margins in the country. So there's things to be done. There are, we know what has to be done. ACCC and others have said it out very clearly. Get on and do those things. That's the third point. And the other bit is there are a number of things which are now gone past the use-by date um, that the ACCC again looked at. Some of, the, some of those very generous renewable energy schemes have, done, have run their course, phased them out, because what we need to do is move forward with sensible central policy. And then I think we'll see some diminution of prices, but I think we're about where we are now, broadly speaking, is where things are going to stay for quite some time. All right. On that point, we might wrap it up there, folks. Uh, thank you very much for attending. Please thank our panellists, Tony Wood, Steve Masters and Audrey Zimmerman. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.